All right, welcome to episode 68 of the Bobbycast, and with Kip Moore today. Good to see you, boy. Good to see you, too, man. Good to see you showing up here today. Can you talk about what you were doing today? Yeah, I was doing this thing with um, with Chase Elliott where we filmed last week where I was on the on the track with him in Michigan, and it's uh, they've picked some athletes where they've, they're kind of asking, how do they get ready for a race? What music do they listen to? And... He listens to my music, so it's that's like pretty cool, up. right? It was cool, man. Um, I, you know, I ran into Chase. It's funny. I met him probably a year and a half ago. Drake White and I were playing a show, and he was kind of uh, he was announcing both of us, and so we got to hang then. I got to know him then, and I didn't know that you know he was a fan of the music back then. So we talked about it back then, and uh, it was neat, man, just seeing his whole world because I can admit that I'm not like. Uh, I didn't grow up with NASCAR, really. I've seen races probably like you have, but I don't know the detail of it. So him bringing me, you know, in the garage, showing how they build the cars up, tear them down after almost every race, all the aerodynamics that go into it. And then and then it's, it was kind of like me picking his brain on the way he likes to, you know, you would think a NASCAR driver would want to listen to, like, really pumped-up music, but he's like, I like to get as calm as I possibly can because – the race is so long and it helps me kind of settle in and knowing that it's going to be, you know, he likes really chilled out music before he gets in the car. That's an interesting thing. Who, who's come to you before and said, Hey, I, it, which was surprising to you. I said, man, I really love your music where you're like, wow, that's cool. Like you like my music. Yeah. <laughs> um, man, I, I can't think off the top of my head right now. Um, I know there's been a few of those cases where any other artists, um, even in town that, that it will call you and be like, dude, I just heard the song of yours and it's fantastic. Um, Jaron Johnston. I'm, I'm such a fan of what the Cadillac 3 do uh, so much. And Jaron and I, are, are we become pretty good buddies, but I can remember when the first time he heard that was us. He's like, if you don't put this song out, I'm going to come over to your house and fight you tomorrow. So, I mean, he's just, he was a big fan of that. And then we ended up touring together after that. So, um, yeah, you know, I didn't know that, you know, Jaron was around listening to my music. So, you know, it's, it's cool, man, when other people that you respect, respect what you do. You're an interesting guy. And... I think in the past six months or so, we probably got to know each other better than we have in the past three and a half years before that. But we were talking, we were, we, you and I were up in a room at, at our management office, and we were talking about Bob Dylan. Yeah. And you were talking, and you were like, you know, I st-, and I was just listening to you. I said, listen, I like to listen. And you, and you were talking, and you were talking about Bob Dylan, and you were talking about how you used to study Bob Dylan lyrics. And I was like, look at this guy, another layer of the onion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Kipmore Onion. I, I did, man. I, you know, I, I feel like um, I feel like Dylan somewhat kind of saved me from myself. I can be a. Um, I, I feel like I'm I'm really coming out of that, but I I, um, I can battle a lot of my own demons pretty heavily. And at the time when I really discovered Dylan, I mean, my dad played him some growing up, but you know when you're when you're 14 and 15, you can't comprehend what Dylan's singing about, nor can you relate to it. You can enjoy the music and the melody, which I did. Kind of the same thing with, with Seeger and Springsteen, but I can't relate to Bob Seeger against the wind when I'm 14, you know. But um, the more, you know, I left home when I was like 17, and I, I went like seven hours away to go play school, but, you know, go to bas- go play basketball away from school. And, and then I've been traveling ever since and just living life and, and diving into stuff wide open and I've been on my own taking care of myself and I can remember living in the biggest 
dump. The last time I went recently to drive by the place and I had yellow tape around the whole place. I guess <laughs> I guess something like that went down, but man, it was awful. It was it was awful, man. And uh, just that feeling of which I'm sure you've had that where looking around at all your friends, kind of on the hamster wheel of life. That sometimes I admire that. I wish I could you know be that way. The people that just you know they'll go work for their dad's insurance company or whatever, and you know they'll make a good living. They'll you know, plant roots, you know, plant roots, have a wife and kids and, and go through that whole kind of structure that we're all kind of programmed to do at a young age. And here I was, 27, living in a complete shithole. Am I allowed to say that yeah. on this? Uh, just feeling like the biggest low life. But at the same time, I had that exciting feeling every morning I woke up that anything could happen. Like, where I felt like everybody else, they knew exactly what their day was going to be. They knew what it was going to be like when they came home. There was an excitement of just feeling like, man, it could, lightning could strike tomorrow. And I think that when I really dove into Dylan at around 26, 27, I mean, I would. I would spend, I'd get off work, and I'd write from, from uh, 5 to 12 o'clock at night and then I would lay on the floor I've always liked to lay on the floor I don't know why but I had a record player and I would listen to all the old Dylan records till 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning and I'd write I'd write out his lyrics I'd try to understand the way he was using his metaphors and everything and the playoff of words he was the best at playoff of words and um, I was just blown away by his music I was so it was such an inspiring time for me and I felt like I really related to a lot of what Dylan was saying in a lot of his music, and I feel like I've always had that that passionate spirit about me, and I looked at things in an innocent kind of way, which a lot of his music was was there was such an innocence to it. There's that. I have a lot of onion. There's a lot of onion to talk about here with you. There's also the part that I found it struck me is that you had a couple hits and you went and got an apartment. I did, did your first decently nice place to live. Yeah, it was my first place. It was decent. But it wasn't good for your soul, so you had to move out. Yeah, I felt like I found myself all of a sudden. It's kind of like I thrive on misery, on misery in a weird way. But I found myself comfortable for the first time in my life, where I was coming home, I was watching TV, I was laying on the couch and eating good food, and and I and all of a sudden I felt like I was I was losing a little bit of that inspiration and that drive that kind of. So I called uh, Brett, who is my publisher, Brett James, who's written a million hits. And he, Brett had bought this old house that was built in the like mid 1800s. It's one of the last remaining ones down there, Music Row, where they're building all the stuff around. It's behind Losers, that that one old building with the black iron gate. And um, it's the spookiest, eeriest, dark. Everything about that place is not where you want to live, but it's great for writing. And I'd written almost the entire Up All Night record in that house. And um, there was, there's a room upstairs. It's just this, it's, it's awful, man. It's a really tiny little box. I mean, it's a lot smaller than this room. And I, I called him and I said, hey, man, I want to move into that room and I want to write my next record in there, you know, in the, in, in the house again, you know. And so I moved all my stuff into that room, was crammed in there, and I, was on a, I slept on a, uh, on a twin bed for about, for about two years. And the hot water heater didn't work, so I took cold showers every morning. And that was like 30 seconds in and out. So 
my when I would go on the road, it was like heaven in an arena, like a shower in an arena. It was like I got hot water, you know. So, but I would I, I wrote almost the whole Wild Ones record for the most part in that house. There was no furniture. There's no uh, and there's a there's a couple like random like regular chairs and not chairs like this and you got no TVs it's all and it's crazy haunted I got haunted stories that would blow your mind which finally ran me out and I got a place because it was so scary at night so you didn't want to be comfortable what what do you think that comes from what do you think the root of that is hey do you create better from sadness (laughs) I, I, I feel like I at that time in my life and I've learned how to just channel a different side of me where I don't, I don't I don't quite need that as much but I still I live I live very very moderate on purpose like I, I have a tiny little house on the other side of town and um, I don't really have any things um, I, I tried but I, I felt like for me it played a trick on my mind where I still felt like I was at the bottom where I feel like I write better out of desperation so it, it, you know, taking cold showers every morning, sleeping on that twin bed, which I hated, man. I had an old junk mattress. It was, it was, all, it was awful, man. Uh, but it just, it played a trick on me to where I still felt like I was completely broke and trying to go after something. And, I, and I've kind of learned how to, that I don't need that as much now. Um, but I still like when I travel, I like to stay in hostels. Um, we just did that whole backpacking through ice and, you know, staying in hostels and, um, I do that when I go to, to Maui sometimes, Costa Rica. Um, and I'll write a lot of music when I'm out there like that. And I'll meet interesting people. And I don't, I, you know, it's, I almost get uncomfortable. Like if I'm around, if I'm in the four seasons, I'm, I'm uncomfortable around those people. They're fine. They're nice. They're good. I, I get uncomfortable around that kind of setting with really fine dining and luxurious rooms. Like it, it's a weird thing, man, for me. You talk about the place being haunted. We've talked about this a bit. But you're convinced, like it's not maybe it was a ghost to you. It's not no, a maybe. There's no. There's no. There's no maybe. This is. I'm, I'm probably about to get off on a weird place here. Um, for me, it could have also been. I was. I was not in a good headspace at all. Um, I was in. A, I was in a really weird. I already written like a whole second project that pretty much got shelved by the label. They were like, we don't have radio stuff here this is too edgy this is too this this is too and that's heartbreaking as, as a writer and artist when you turn something in and I try to explain that to a lot of people sometimes too where my old jobs there was a beauty in just going to work doing the job going home kind of having that mindless feel of okay now I can devote this other part of my time to a girlfriend or whatever kind of thing or family or I was present when I would leave work and you know, with this job, you're, even yours, you're, you're constantly on judgment for everything. I don't, I wouldn't trade my job for anything, but it's you're, it's a constant state of judgment, and um, that was a hard thing to turn in something I was so passionate about, which I hope sees the life of day one day. Um, but I was in a bad, bad place, and I've always. Um, had a heart for God, and I'll say that openly. Like I've always been really connected with God, even even when I'm not reading, even when I don't go to church. I've just always I know that God's always with me, and I've usually been pretty good about reading Scripture, going to church. I'm all, you know I just go by myself at night or go on Tuesday nights or whatever, and sit in the back and I leave and I stay connected. And at that time, I was really I wasn't connected at all, and it wasn't that I was out, you know, 
doing blow all night and stuff. It was just that I was I was completely separate. And I was in a bad, dark place. I could barely get out of bed. I felt like a lot of mornings. Um, and uh, maybe I was susceptible to, because I believe there's a battle of good and evil all the time going on around. And maybe I was, at that time in my life, really susceptible to that entity tricking with my mind. I, I don't know. But I can tell you the stuff that went down in that house. I mean, it would be, you know, clear as day. I'd go down and get a drink of water, and, and the garbage disposal is underneath the sink. You have to flip a switch to turn it on, and I would be walking off, and that thing would bang, boom, cut back off. I'd turn around, I'd look, and all the hairs would be up in my arm, and I'd walk back off, and bang, turn See, back See, I on. would just go old house. That's what I would say if I'd be like, old house, but this Bobby, thing happens. like, I would look up underneath, switch is still off. I, can, I, can, I got a million of those. There was a, uh, there was a pantry. And it used to have a hole in the floor. And I'm the only one there. And I would, at night, you know, late at night, you know, I'd go in, maybe get some, get a snack out of the pantry, and I'd look. And the basement, the basement was the spookiest basement ever. But the light would be on underneath the pantry floorboard. And I'd be like, I know I cut that off. I know that wasn't on. I was in here last time. I cut it off. I come back next morning, that thing was on. You have to flip the switch on to turn it off. I mean, a shorts, if the, if the switch is off, you're not going to get a short like it's not, you know, so. But the kicker was I'd be laying in my bed and this happened about three times. And on the second time, I told my manager, I said, hey, do me a favor. Look for me a place. And this happened as I really settled into the house and was living there. I've been writing songs there for four or five years. And people have had little stuff happen. But the minute it was like I moved in there, it all kind of started building up. And it was almost like they were going like, oh, buddy. You got to ride, you got to get, you know, so, but I can remember laying there in bed about three o'clock, and it always would happen close to three o'clock. I can remember laying there in my bed, and I don't know what grenades sound like. I got no clue, but it would be like us being in this room, and it sound like somebody's just setting grenades off all through your house, and it would sound like 500 people decided on the count of three, we're going to raise as much hell as we can. And every, it sounded like, and I was in a tiny room, and it sounded like there was a fist on every inch of the wall on all around me just slamming and banging. And you can imagine waking up to that, feeling like the fear of that. First of all, feeling like somebody's breaking into your house. Second of all, this is a whole nother bag. To the point where my bed was physically shaken. Like, there's like the, the house, the foundation was almost shaken. My bed was moving, and I wake up. And I would come to, and it would last for three or four seconds as I had woken up. And the fear behind that man was just, and I would try to just, I'd pray. I'd be like, I'm not going to let this bother me. I'm good. And I'd, I'd eventually lay back down. And that happened about three different times. I had a broom from me to you sweeping 10 solid seconds to where I just sat up, and I mean, every hair, and I just kind of, I know I'm not hearing a broom beside me right now. And I'd lay back down. After it would stop, I'd lay back down, and it would start right back up. And I, I even, like, sat up in my bed. I cut the lights on, and I said at one point, I said, hey, look, clean all you want. <laughs> I said, this place needs cleaning. I'm, I, I'm good with you. You can clean all you want, and I'd lay back down. But I was scared to death, but I was trying to get myself calm. But, you know, that might have been a whole other thing, man, that could have been I don't know, Bobby. I, I mean, to me, it was a ghost, but it could have also been what I was talking about earlier. I'm not sure. 
I still don't know what that was. So you moved, but and that hasn't happened since. No, I mean, I've barely been back in there since. I used to write in there every single day, and I wrote this whole new record. I didn't write one song in there. And that's kind of gave me a sense of peace because I feel like it's the best stuff I've done, but I felt like I was confined to... I love that Wild Ones record, and like I said, I wrote almost everything in there, but I've learned that I don't have to be living with a ghost and taking cold showers <laughs> to, write, to write songs, you know? Uh, let me talk about Express Pro, ExpressPros.com for one second. Did you know the average number of people who apply for any given job at all is 118 people? And only 20% of the applicants get an interview because a ton of the companies use a software to screen out applicants before anyone even sees a resume. So, you know, that was, I saw that on Forbes. So simply uploading your resume won't get you a job. You need an advocate. Express Employment Professionals is the local resource to help you get a job. Express has more than 18,000 jobs available weekly. When you interview at Express, they'll assess your skills. They'll connect you with available jobs, and they'll team up with you in your job search. Express has jobs in, let's see, what do you want to do? Manufacturing, accounting, customer service, sales, distribution, all of these type of jobs. I don't know what you're doing right now. Maybe you don't have a job. Maybe you want a better job. Tired of applying online, never hearing back? Visit your locally owned Express office today and speak to professionals. Express never charges a job seeker to find employment. Visit ExpressPros.com. Apply online, ExpressPros.com, or find an office near you. All right, so here's something I learned from you. I guess probably eight months or so, you and I met for breakfast, and you were singing in the morning. I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah. I was like, why are you singing in the morning? You're like, oh, my low end. It's best for my low end. No idea that was even yeah. a thing. So yeah. explain that to me and to people who have no idea about the recording process and vocals. You know, and, and once again, that was a... Uh, for me, that that's kind of a thing for me, is in the first thing in the morning before I've been talking a lot or singing, because I, I sing like all my own harmonies on this record too, so you have to use a whole different, you gotta really stretch that high end. And once you've burned that high end a whole lot, you know, you're singing for an hour straight, that low end is just kind of, it's still there. I mean, I, I just, I kind of naturally have a deeper voice, but it's the width and you can feel it on the mic. You can feel it in the control room. The width that I have in the morning is just different than I have late at night once I burn that out and I, it's just that's just me just kind of learning from singing you know doing so many demos throughout the years and being like man my voice just in the morning it feels like there's a whole different width to it and maybe that's become a psychological thing too but I just feel I feel really strong getting the most width out of my voice in the morning do you feel like you sing better in the shower <laughs> I wonder if legitimately great singers feel like they even sound better in the shower. I feel like everybody sounds better in but the shower. But you do. Like, do you ever yeah. sing in the shower and go, dang, because I do. And I'm not, I'm, yeah. I'm not a good singer. But you're a really good singer. Do you sing and go, I'm even better in the shower? I think I'm pretty incredible in the shower. Yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> why I'm is pretty... that? Again, help out somebody well, it's, who doesn't it's, it's know. It's the reverb. Then why it's, like don't... A, it's like a natural reverb chamber. But then why don't we create, why don't I go well, into we, a studio? Are, there is that stuff in studios. Then you why got... am I not? Like, yeah. I go and sing in some really good studios that never sounds you don't, as good you don't, a, a lot of uh a lot of recordings nowadays, when you when you hear those old records, you hear Freddie Mercury and you hear these old guys, um, those Guns N' Roses records, all that stuff. Man, they were all singing in these. You listen to those Zeppelin records; they're playing drums in this massive, like uh, stairwell where it's all that verb. Like it used to be tracked a lot more that way. Um, 
now everybody's trying to compress and get this tight, tight, you know, trying to put pads all over these walls to, to lock everything in where it's this really dry sound. And they like mixing that way. It's just how times have kind of changed. Um, but I like singing in the Verby room. And I, I, you know, I, there was a, there was a little bit doing this new record more than I ever have, you know, having a little bit of that natural verb in the room and Blackbird has got like the greatest reverb chamber ever over there at that studio. But you don't really want to sing leads in there because it's just too boomy. And then it just gets all washy. But backgrounds are amazing in that room. Talk about that for a second. That's interesting. So you'll sing leads in one place, but backgrounds in another. Yeah, like if you want to get like a big, uh, you know, big gang vocals, uh, all that Def Leppard stuff that just sounds so massive on all that like hysteria record. And, you know, I'll guarantee you that was done in a massive reverb chamber. Um and I know, like for wild ones with uh, with lipstick, you know, dun, 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 hey, dun, when you're doing like this big haze, we got around, all got around one mic, all six of us, and did the big haze just because it just kind of sounds like it's swirling all around you, where you want your that lead vocal to you know speak right to you, kind of thing. I still like having old school verb on a lead vocal, um, but for the most part, you want that to be a little tighter. On this new record, I'll talk about that for a second because. I think you went through this process a little different than you have before. Mm-hmm. You did a lot more of this yourself. Mm-hmm. Kind of, and I've read this stuff, but I've heard you talk about it too. So, wh- why did you approach this record different than the last couple? Um, because you recorded some of it without telling anybody, right? Like, didn't yeah. you start recording stuff? Um, for, first off, you know, I did the first two records with Brett James. Who, man, I I, I take a bullet for Brett tomorrow. Man, I, I love that dude with. All my heart, and and we're like brothers. Um, and he's amazing. Brett's such an incredible songwriter, musician, singer, everything. Um, but I just I felt like on this one, I had been writing these songs, and I've been living with them so much. And we we were great at co-producing records together, um, but we we butt heads a lot. We would, and um, you know, I'd hear one part, he'd hear another part, and. And um, I felt like sometimes that took a little bit of a strain on our friendship a little bit. Um, and Brett's one of the best friends I've ever had. Um, and I just felt like going into this one, as far as that part goes, I'd been living with these songs so much. I'd already been, you know, I'll, I'll lay in my bunk, and I'll after I come up with a guitar riff or, or whatever that's kind of inspired me on that day, I'll sing all the parts that I'm hearing like around that. Like I'll just start building the track vocally. I'll build a whole track just singing wise where I'm singing the beat and then I'm layering like, well, okay, this is what the bass line is going to do and I'll do all that and I'll sing, okay, this guitar part's going to do this on the second bar right here on on the four chord and I'll kind of sing all these different layers and I, I had it. It's like pentatonics. You're doing yeah, the pentatonics. Yeah, but yeah, I so, like to break it in. It's like yeah, pentatonics. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so it was one of those things where I knew exactly what I wanted. I knew exactly how I wanted the sound. Um, so when I went in, I didn't want anybody giving me pushback on it. I knew what I wanted, and I knew I wanted to go in there and sing a little bit. Of, um, you know, I wanted to do some funky stuff that I hadn't done before, and I, I believe so much in the melodies of, of this record. Um, but I did, I, I I kind of, Wild Ones had only been out for a year. It really wasn't time to, as far as the country world goes, you know, it's it's still that whole cycle of you make a record every two or three years, which 
fucking drives me crazy. Creatively. Drives me crazy. Drives me crazy. Um, So, and I'm always writing, but I kind of gathered this handful of songs that I believed in a whole lot. And I was like, man, this is a really cool thing. I've been kind of creating. So I went in and uh, I just recorded like four or five of them. And I went in like as a, you know, in like a record style, like I'm, you know, approaching it like a record. And they came back and I was just, I was so happy with them. And I just kind of went to see Brian Wright, my A&R rep. And I said, man, I just want you to hear what I've been doing. You tell me what you think. I've been recording some sides and I played them for him and he called me back and he was just kind of flipping over me. He was like, I got to go play these for the label right now. I said, all right. So the next thing I know, I'm getting a call a few days later and he's like, you got to go in and make a record. This is great. We got to get this stuff now. So for the next eight or nine months that's all I did every time I got off the road I was recording and writing and trying to finish that record over the last year so you do four or five songs but then when you know you're doing a record does that change how you're writing songs because at first it feels like you're writing for you you're creating for you yeah. you don't know where it's going to go yeah. now you have a direction where you know where it's going to go does that change the creative process in your head I think before it might have um but I think I was in such a confident headspace of where I was going and I knew what I wanted to do and I knew what I wanted to say that, um, yeah, I just, I, I was more just kind of like, all right, I'm, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to do this. And I, and I recorded 21, only 13 are going to make the record. I rec- and I probably wrote 30 for this project, 30, 35 and, uh, recorded 21 of them. Because you, you just end up getting so close to the songs, and you're like, okay. And then a lot of times you go in to track one, and that's when you realize, all right, the song's not quite as good as I thought. Or, and what tracking means is you have a band play this song, like you, yeah, and they like all, and, and um, they come in, you may sing the scratch over the top of yeah, it. Yeah, um, but I mean, like in, in tracking, a lot of the tracking I did, like a lot of this record was just me and David Garcia in his house, and that was a very different process for me too. Where we just played all the instruments and we just built it from the ground up in his house. Um, I did a track with a band on about 70% of it. Um, and, um, you know, I would, I would play the instruments on that too. And, and, um, you know, get all the music down first and then I'd do the vocals after guitar man was the only one where I can, that's the main one. I can't wait for people to hear. It was all in one take and it happened really spontaneous where we had the full band playing it. And when the take was over, it never felt right to me. We'd probably played it five or six times as a full band and I was like man something's just not speaking right to me on this song and we all took a break to step away from it and uh, Tom Bukovac and Dave Cohen were just kind of sitting in there messing with each other just the organ and one guitar and I told I told him I, I acted like I was just like hey start over like you're playing that from the top just kind of mess around with each other and I hit record without him even really knowing it and I walked into the vocal booth and sang it from the top down in one take. And so that whole take that you hear on the record is just all of us in one take. Oh, that's that? Yeah. That's, so that's going to be that song. It ended song. up being the, the song, you know, and I think it's, you know, I think it's the most powerful track on the record. So, um, yeah, so that some really cool organic stuff happened like that on this record. And then... Is that song going to make it? You say you got to cut songs. No, I've already, I've, the record's done. So the record's it's, done. I got 13. I, we, I just got my master copy yesterday. So that's exciting, right? Man, it's. Do you yeah. like hearing you like hearing yourself back? Yeah, when you've worked that hard, yeah. I mean, you love hearing like. Uh, 
I get weird if I go to a gym or something and they assume just because I play country music, like, oh, Kip Moore's in here. Let's put on a country playlist that he's, you know, what I feel weird doing. That feels bizarre. So you say you're going somewhere, sometimes they'll turn you on yeah, to make you feel good, I but guess then you're so. like, oh. I guess so, yeah. <laughs> I kind of feel like an asshole, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I do. I'm like, oh, I'm the freaking asshole in the gym right now. Um, it's like you demanded. Or, or they'll you just turn on country music. You know, yeah. like I'll get picked up. You know, you get picked up from a venue, and they're like, okay, let's turn on the country station. They turn, and I'm like, hey, I, country music's not the only thing I listen to. I play country music, but, but, uh, but yeah, man. I mean, like getting back that master copy, um, and and riding around and hearing what you've worked at so hard, and to hear it back, and it's came out even better than you hoped. I mean, it's a and that's the and that's the part where I wouldn't trade this job for nothing. You know, it's like that feeling. I'm one of the few people on this planet that gets to have that exhilarating feeling, man, of just like you've you've stepped out, you've put yourself for exposure to be completely bashed, man, and just having that excitement of like this might be this might be amazing. This might be lightning in a bottle. That's the cool thing. It might tank, but when when I I was telling somebody this other day, like I have such a sense of peace about me now because it's like, not that I didn't with Wild Ones because I made the record I wanted to make, but this one more than any project, I did the exact songs I wanted to. There was no outside influence. I recorded them exactly like I wanted to. The sounds were exactly like I wanted to. I, I did this record just like I had it in my head, and I followed through with it. And I stuck to my guns. And I'm okay if it fails. Like, I can lay my head on my pillow at night going, I, I did it exactly how I wanted to. So if that if that doesn't work, I can sleep. I can live with that. What I can't live with is, you know, I mean, I even had people when I was, wasn't working at radio, you know. And, and I understand it from the label side. They won't, you know, they've seen this artist that all of a sudden had this breakout record that, okay, we're going to make some money off. It's all, it's all about money, you know what I mean? It's a business. Like, you know, so we want to keep this train going. And then all of a sudden you got a, a couple slip ups. And it was like when they shelved that next record, it was like everybody started sending me songs. And man, I, I hated them, hated them. But I was smart enough to hear them and go, that's a hit song. It's a hit song. I know it's a hit. I could sing this. This would be a hit tomorrow. But I couldn't, first off, I couldn't stand on stage and sing that every night. If I don't believe it. Second of all, if it didn't work, that's when I'd really go into a freaking spiral downward. Like I can't, I can't lay my head on my pillow at night. So for me, it was like I politely, you know, and I'm paraphrasing, but I can remember I wrote one of the people that labeled I'm really close with, and he just, you know, I, I don't know what his reaction to it was. I never got a response, but I then sent like seven or eight songs. You know, we all thinking you should cut one of these for your next single, you know, whatever. And I, I said, look, guys, I appreciate y'all trying to help me. I understand where your heart's at. I know that y'all want the best for this and we all want the best for this whole thing. But if I said, I'll quit playing music, I'll never fucking touch a guitar again if I have to record any of these songs. It's not happening. Sin. And that's what I sent. And so nobody ever wrote back to me. <laughs> and that's And that's when I... <laughs> and after that, you know, I was still in the funk for a while, but it was a, it was a couple months after that when I really kind of picked myself back up and started writing Slow Heart. What got you out of that? What made you pick yourself back up? 
I think there's a lot of things. I think that for me, a big thing kind of coming back, um, whenever I'm connected to my faith, whenever I'm just spending time in that, I'm in a lot more peace. And it's the, the crazy thing about that is I know that about myself. Yet I'll still push it aside. I'll push it aside for months sometimes. And then I'll get back into it. Um, and that's when I'm at the most peace. I think there was a combination of that. I think that a big thing happened to um, Dave, you know, and I, I'd already written probably half of it when this happened, but, I, you know, it was a whole other half. And I was Dave Lapsley, who's, you know, one of the closest people to me in my life was my guitar player since the day that I moved here. I mean, he believed in me from day one and he was playing with me for 12 or 13 years. And he was, I mean, he was, we were, we were thick as thieves and I just shared everything with Dave and he went on all the radio tour stuff and it was just me and him and, you know, the bond you create doing that, trying to get somewhere together. Um, and even before I had a record deal, me and him were touring out of my Jeep for like three years. CAA believed in me a long time ago and they were getting me gigs. I, every weekend I was gone opening for Trace or Billy or whatever, but you know the game and there was no money in it. So it's just me and him in a Jeep not guaranteed a dime and having to hustle me selling one t-shirt and a demo that I wasn't supposed to sell back then and like two or three songs and the people still show up with those old demos and um and him you know I'd, I'd tell him to go hustle and go make friends and find us a place to crash tonight and he'd find see we, we crashed on fans floors for two or three years every single show after every show and I'd sell the merch and uh so I, I say all that because he was like a brother to me and um, back in like December, you know, at the end of our tour, he said, you know, and he'd been obviously contemplating this for a while, but his wife got offered this really huge job for for Apple and um, they had to move to Minneapolis and he was like, man, she, she really wants this job, you know, it's a whole lot of money and, um, you know, we're, we're going to do it, you know, and that was like the biggest blow for me it was such a blow because when you go through all of that and at the end of the day it all a lot of times comes down to money had we been a big successful band by then which we're you know in that stage of we're successful but you're not making the kind of money where the worries like that go away with family and all that kind of stuff and he's got a family to take care of and I felt so like responsible for that and it was just it was the most it was it was heartache for me. I mean, I, I I shed tears over the whole thing because I always had this dream of us getting to this mountaintop together, and me and him standing on that and just being like, "Man, look what we did," you know. And that's with all my band, but you know, he was with me first. Um, so that's when I kind of went away. I went out and surfed for a month, and in Maui, then surfed for a month in Costa Rica, and then went to Iceland. And during all that time, man, I just. I just finally started letting go of all that burden of that, man, and just kind of, I was carrying all that weight even before that, feeling like you got to keep the whole train moving, which I'm sure you do sometimes. You got people now that are employed because of the success of your show, and you feel that responsibility of, man, these people are counting on me to keep being creative and keep this thing going, and you feel like a failure when your songs aren't working. And even though our shows, we're doubling and tripling in size. It was like everybody else was viewing it as it was a failure because people in Nashville are in such a bubble where you think it's all about, you know, it's just radio. And if you're not working at radio, then it, well, he must not be working. Well, let's push him to the side and let's focus on this guy because he's got some hits going on over here. And I felt all that, you know, 
Um, so I think it was a combination of all that. And then as I, I got out there and I spent some time in prayer and I was surfing, I was finding that peace and I just kind of, I just came out on a different side and I was like, man, whatever's supposed to happen with me is going to happen. This is all divine plan, however it's supposed to be. And all I can do is wake up and be happy that I've been blessed with this amazing life that I fought so hard to have. And I don't know how long it's going to last. You don't know how long your thing's going to last. And it was just a sense of peace in that after I'd really sat down and think about it. And it's not my fault, you know, that the thing with Dave didn't work out and letting go of all that garbage. And man, when I came out on the other side, other side, man, the, the music, it started showing in the music, the melody started showing in this sense of, even the song like Bittersweet Company that's such a heart-wrenching lyric it was like these amazing happy melodies on top of it which was the Jukes of Motown which was I love about Motown but um, just when you hear this record man you can sense that there's a better place mentally that I got to than much as I love Wild Ones and where I was when I created Wild Ones you talk about a mountaintop what is your mountaintop I don't think there is an mountaintop I don't, I don't, I don't, mountaintop I don't think and that's another thing Bobby for me for so long it was Happiness was, man, when we're finally headlining that big arena, when we're finally playing that stadium, and and I just, I see it completely different now. You know, some other day was asking me, you know, what are your goals for 2018? And I, when I said, I don't have any, they looked at me like I was crazy. And I was like, it doesn't mean that I'm not ambitious. doesn't mean that I don't want to be the, you know, be great at what I do. doesn't mean that I still don't want to sell out stadiums and do that whole thing. But my my goal is to continue to make music and hopefully people show up and want to sing it, you know, and, and to be on a stage with my best friends playing just to hope to, that's my goal. That's my, now I'm, I find myself being so much more present living in the moment as far as this year's gone with shows. It's like, there's a, there's a happiness. Cause I'm, I was always thinking about, Oh, Golly, well, this has happened. I gotta, I gotta try to fix this now. We're not gonna get to this next spot. And I was always thinking ahead, which caused me to be a complete wreck as a human being. Um, and now it's, and I still have that thing of, I'm, I'm always strategically okay. We gotta focus on this, and we gotta, you know, I'm, I'm still that guy, but I'm letting go of the stuff that I can't control, and I'm enjoying the moments that are meant to be enjoyed. Uh, so I think that's been the biggest change for me and I, I don't see a mountaintop anymore it's it's man that'd be awesome if we were able to play that stadium but it's badass if we're headlining the theater tomorrow night too and we got three thousand people singing along like so um my mindset's changed in that sense for sure talk about your live shows for a second because you put a lot of work i mean you take the live show seriously oh yeah you pay a lot of attention to the crowd yeah probably more than you should yeah, I mean, I think I think to your detriment sometimes. For sure, for sure, and I, and that's another thing that I'm learning. I've gotten better at that, man. Like I'm I'm starting to really, you know, even after our conversation, you know, I thought about the Steve Martin thing that you were telling me about last time. You know, I had a couple shows here recently, man. What was I mean? It was just insanity, insanity. The shows, and I saw a couple of despondent faces that usually would have I would have been like, shit, why can't why why aren't they enjoying themselves? They might be enjoying themselves. They're enjoying themselves in a different way, but I was quickly able to be like, let's keep playing. Like, I, I, you know, just, and it was, it felt good to be that way. Um, But I do, man, I take, I take it serious. I've never missed a sound check. My whole career, I've never missed a sound check. Um, 
I'm super. I'm I'm super locked in when the show's even going on while I'm entertaining. And the next day, I'll be like, Hey, you know, Brad, are you? You, you didn't you didn't you you didn't play the five chord on the on the fourth bar of the course last night the second course you know whatever and he'll kind of look at me and be like yeah I did and I'm like no you didn't <laughs> you missed it you missed the note and you were flat on the bend on the opening ellipsic no I wasn't yeah you were I'll you know Dusty hit play the play, I'll record all the shows but play the board back and we'll listen and I'll be right there and I'll go all right yeah I got you and then he'll be like were you paying attention to that? And I'm like, so I'm super hyper focused with stuff like that because, man, I, I just I think about being a great band, the bands that inspired me, man. I just how amazingly locked in they were on stage, and I also think about so many of these people. That's why I never I, I've sang through strep throat a million times. I've gotten. Early on in my career, I was always sick from all the traveling. I wasn't sleeping. I was always sick. You know, I, I won't cancel shows. I'm sure I'll probably, there will come a time when I just physically can't do one one day, but I try to sing through everything. Um, I, 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 these people, you know, some of them are making minimum wage and they've been saving up for this show. They've been saving for months and looking forward to this show. And I can't just go out and go through the motions, man. I got to give them everything we got. And that's, the only reason that during that lull, because radio is so huge for any artist, any artist is lying when they say they don't want to be played on the radio and something. I mean, all the big guns, Tom Petty, Merle Haggard was like, "I'm just dying for one more hit," you know. Towards the end of it, you know, everybody wants to be heard by the masses. You know what I mean? I mean, that's you want your songs to be heard. Doesn't mean that you're selling out if you get heard by the masses. It's, there's been so many of our favorite songs we've sang along with our whole life. They weren't sellout songs. They were just amazing songs. And you're always wanting to write that amazing song, like a song like Guitar Man. And you're hoping that it gets heard by your fan base, yes, but you're hoping that it gets heard by millions of others that never had a chance to hear your music. You know, that's a special thing, riding down the road and hearing your song on the radio, man. That's a powerful thing. Um, so I can't remember what the hell we were talking about. You're talking about live shows. Oh, yeah. So for me, it's just like, you know, I just look at it like the the way we poured ourselves and the way we were so attentive to detail and trying to give every ounce of ourselves every night during those, you know, up until kind of running for you, but more with this song. Kind of, this song's kind of the first time that I'm really having some momentum since Pretty Girl. But our fan base has tripled in size through this lull where a lot of people, the minute that radio is gone, artist is dead in the water and that's just a fact um but we i think because we've prided ourselves so much on that live show and staying authentic to ourselves that we've able we've been able to thrive during this downtime let me play this new song here so right now when you're hearing this you can hear this in a year from now and this won't be the new song but right now more girls like you so god make girls like you make guys like me and what part of the process did you record this song I recorded this uh, back in December, early December. Um, that was that was uh, Josh Miller um, singing a piece of that course, a line from that course. 
um, he he said, uh, all he had was want to reach for a brighter star, set it on a ring, put it on your hand. And that was kind of all we had. And then it was like we had the melody, but that was kind of the only line. And then I just kind of went straight into that. I started playing that acoustic riff that you hear in the beginning. And then the the melody, I, I immediately was like, you know, I've been living like a wild old Mustang out of Montana fields. And I was just kind of singing about my life. And we didn't quite know where the song was going at that time. But I could tell by the line he said, you know, want to reach for the brightest star and sail in a ring. Well, all right, well, we're talking about, you know, finding that right person. So then it was me talking about my life in that opening verse. And uh, I've been living like a wild old out of Montana fields. Might have earned me a bad reputation and never stopped these wheels. And that was just kind of like, you know, I might have heard the, the grumbles of different things about the way I live or whatever, but it was like, you know, I just keep going on about it. But I was trying to find a way, an interesting way to get to what he was saying. And then we just, we started flying with that, me and Josh and David Garcia and, and Stephen Lee Olson. Yeah, listen to that song. Rich, say that first line again. Uh, I've been living like a wild old Mustang out in Montana fields. Might earn me a bad reputation, but never stop these wheels. I'm rolling and going too far. Uh, from, from going and rolling too far. Running and gunning a little too hard. So unrained, so untamed. I was just picturing, and I had the image in my head. I was picturing Montana is one of my favorite places. I just I love the people of Montana so much. I love being out there. And I was just picturing this wide open range in my head that I've seen as we've passed through Montana on the bus and picturing this wild horse that you can't quite. And that was the image. And I'll ride around images a whole lot. I'll get an image in my head and then I'll ride around how that pertains to my life. And that, so that was in my head as I sped out that first set of verses. Is that you? You feel like that's you? Like in that verse? Yeah, 100% that's that, me. That's you. 100%, man. I mean, it's I've, I know that I've been aloof and hard to rein in. I know it many times. I've, I've had... A lot of people that I've really, you know, you know, not a lot. I don't even know why the hell I just said a lot. I've I've gotten close to a, a couple people in in my journey along this whole thing, and I know that I've uh, I've been tough to rein in. Like I know that about myself. I've been so just trying to go after this thing so hard, man, that it's just it's taken up all my attention. Talk about Blue Apron for one second. I love Blue Apron. You know, I do the show from my house. And coincidentally, that is where Blue Apron comes, right to my door. So Blue Apron comes, and it's in a big, awesome Blue Apron box. And for less than $10 per person, per meal, Blue Apron delivers these awesome meals to you. Make them right at home. Seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients make delicious home-cooked meals and variety. Choose from the – just look at the website. I, I, I can tell you. Just look at the website. BlueApron.com slash BobbyCast. Also, go over and t- make sure you put BobbyCast at the end of that. BlueApron.com slash BobbyCast because check out this week's menu. Get your first three meals for free with free shipping. BlueApron.com slash BobbyCast. And you're like, well, I don't even know how to cook. Yeah, I don't either. Welcome to the club of not knowing how to cook. And so there's a card that teaches you how to do it. They have all the recipes. They're pre-portioned. They show you exactly how to do it. Beep, beep, beep. If I can do it, you can do it. So Blue Apron, you'll love how good it feels and how good it tastes. Create incredible home-cooked meals. BlueApron.com slash BobbyCast. Blue Apron is a better way to cook. All right, so I want to talk about... Give me one second, Bobby. Use the bathroom right quick. All right, Kip is going to go... Go to the bathroom. <laughs> go to my bathroom. Hey, man, yeah. We're going to keep rec- We're gonna keep rolling. So you just... You, go for it. We're, the rule of this is we don't stop the tape. 
and we don't edit. <laughs> so I believe this is the first time ever that anyone's had to go to the bathroom. Yeah, <laughs> I think Jake Owen had to go, but he didn't say. And anything. he held it the whole time. <laughs> That's funny. So he was in my bathroom a minute ago, and he walked in. He was like, "Ah, oh, I also am a single man." <laughs> <laughs> what do you see? Because there's just it's just so I, I have like ten pair of glasses mm-hmm. in there because I have a bunch of uh, different kind of glasses, and he was like, "Yeah, I get it, I get it." And I was like, you're actually the first person that's ever... Because I, I didn't mean to leave my bathroom door open with Cole here the other day. My bedroom door. But my bedroom is right next to this studio. And we have a bathroom that's actually in the studio. But it's like a toilet. And there's no soap. And there's like boxes of books. I don't it's know, storage. Really, it's kind of a storage room with a toilet. <laughs> and so, anyway, Kip's my bathroom right now. And here, let's hear a little something from Kip Moore here. Let's see. How about something about a truck? Here we go. And there's something about a truck and a He's coming back. Here, they come out. Right? You good? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like that bathroom? Messy, huh? I'm, yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's. I told uh, you, I'm a single dude. What you? And it looks like mine. I can't, I can't hate on you though. But you got a record player just like mine in there. It's a good record player. Man, I love that freaking thing. I got two of those in my house. Like one upstairs and one down. What's uh? What do you? Let's say you go home tonight. What are you gonna put on? Uh, right now I have, I got a Dan Fogelberg album on there right now, but, uh, I had a James Taylor on the night before, um, had an old Dylan record. Um, you had a tough day. Tell me what song you put on. You had a tough day. It's a tough day. Uh, Stolen Car, Bruce Springsteen. Why that song? Man, cause that song just rips your heart out. That's what it does. Song just completely. And I like to, a lot of people, it's funny, man. Like I'll meet people that are like, you know. Whenever they're brokenhearted or wherever they're going through a bad time, I don't want to listen to anything, you know, sad. Like, I just, I want to get my, you know, I like tapping into that part of my soul. I don't, I don't try to run from it. Like, I like tapping into it and getting it out. You're stolen car, right? It's from the river, right? It's so honest. The song's so honest, man. It's we got married and we swore we'd never part, but little by little, you know, it's it's he sings sorrow. Him and Annie Lennox and and uh Griffin. Uh, I think he sings sorrow better than anybody to me. I, just, I love tapping into that, man. That's interesting to say singing sorrow because when I think of singing sorrow, I think of Michael Stipe. You think of who? Michael Stipe from R.E.M. Oh, man. He was I think, great, too. I think about sorrow singers. He was that's, a, great. that's an interesting concept. Sorrow. Like, who are the he best sings sorrow singers? sorrow so well, man. Um, uh, what's the song I'm thinking about, man? That's, um, oh, gosh. In that movie, Love Actually. Um, when she finds out, finally finds out that he's that that he's having an affair with the young girl at the office, and there's that song that's I I, I know the artist, and I'm all of a sudden I'm it's such an I have the soundtrack up. Dido, Joni Mitchell, Joni Mitchell. That's who sings. Oh, Star both sides now. That yeah, I mean both sides now is, is this song incredible lyric. 
if this song doesn't move you, then there's something wrong like with your soul. There's something missing. Rolls and flows of angel hair And ice cream castles in the air And feather canyons everywhere Looked at clouds that way But now they only block the sun. This is the mo- you can hear emotion. She's talking about the, the way she used to look at clouds being these beautiful things, and now how I look at them after heartbreak, they only block the sun. You know, they bring the rain. It's like, what a amazing way to write about that topic. And that's how she does that whole song. And man, I just I like to tap into that stuff when I'm feeling that way. I mean, I, she sings sorrow the best, simply the best. So, you're, you're an interesting guy to me because you've done a lot of different things. And you mentioned earlier, you, you had a basketball scholarship. Mm-hmm. You were a good athlete as a kid. So you went to play ball. I'm assuming you played a guard. You're a guard? <laughs> I mean, you're not the tallest. I'm the center. You're not the tallest the guy. No, I'm not, Bobby. Yeah, man, I was a, I was a point guard. And, um, yeah, man, I, I still have that trash talking in me when I go play. I, Did you love it? Yeah, I loved it. I didn't love golf. I, I I played golf because I looked up to my dad so much. Um, he was an amazing man, but he was tough. He was really tough growing up. Um, I have so much appreciation for him in so many unique ways now. And as he got older, he softened. And as we got older, we learned how to handle him too. But growing up as a kid, he was the, the single most blunt human being you've ever met. He's a, a dying breed. I mean, he would shoot you so straight and he would talk to a six-year-old the same way he would a 30-year-old there was no difference and he didn't know how to sugarcoat stuff um so that was really tough as a kid i could score 35 in a game and come home and i would only hear about the mistakes that i made and he was an incredible athlete he was a three-sport you know college athlete he was pro golfer my granddad was a pro golfer my great-granddad was a pro golfer Uh, i never played golf I never had any desire to, and he never pushed me to play. He never tried to put a club in my hand. My middle brother was an All-American at golf, um, and I had only, like, you know, dabbled in it when I was a kid. If I went out there to be at the golf course with him and, the, you know, the little, you know, it was a little tiny little club in our little hometown, and, and uh, you know, I might go out there and ride the three-wheeler with him, and while he'd pick up balls, I might hit a couple, but I never actually played until I quit baseball my junior year. And I was just waiting on basketball season. So it was my junior, kind of going into my junior summer. And my senior year is about to start. And I was like, you know, I had a couple friends on the golf team. I was like, man, I'm just going to go hang out with them today. Go hit a few balls, go see my dad out there. And I was like, I'm going to see if I can play this game kind of thing while I'm waiting on basketball season to start. And I remember being on the range and hitting. And he came up behind me. And he always made me nervous because I was always trying to make him be proud and that still translate that translated over to music big time um but i can remember him standing beside me behind me he didn't say a word for like five minutes and i was like what is he thinking was he doing he's making me nervous and i just kept hitting balls and he finally kind of walked up beside me and looked at me and he was an intimidating guy too he was a big just stacked dude and he he looked at me and he said i be damned he said, your swing was shit when you were a little kid. 
I don't know what's happened, but you have one of the, you know, the most perfect plane and swings that I've seen. And it was, I couldn't believe I was getting a compliment like that from you. So I became a maniac. All of a sudden, that's all I did. Next morning, I was out there at 7 a.m. And I was there till dark, hitting balls all day. And in one summer, you know, I, I basically was playing for four months. And by the end of that summer, I was shooting in the 60s. This was a, a maniac with it. And he was just always like, he'd come out there when I was hitting. He was like, man, you keep doing this. You're going to be something in this game. Like, you, you can play so it just was all of a sudden I wasn't even thinking about bat but I never loved the game it was just I could play I could really play so it's a horrible putter but uh and he would boy he would shoot you straight with that um but um but I still took my basketball scholarship and I wanted to do that for a while and then I eventually just I wanted to see what I could do in that game and I wanted to do it because he was always talking about when I go home man have you, have you you know, I, you know, if you've gone out and played with the golf team and if you've gone out and hit any balls, he was excited about how good I was. So I found myself just being like just a psychopath with practicing. I quit basketball, and I put all my focus on that for like two or three years. And then when that was done, I just completely quit. I never really played anymore. I just kind of stopped. Every now and then, like, you know, I'll talk a little trash to Jake Owen or somebody and be like, man, you can't play. I'll go out here and play. Also <laughs> a good golfer. <laughs> yeah, he's good. Are you he's better good. than Jake is? I, I te- you know, I don't know. I've never played with Jake. Oh, you but, guys haven't played together? But I teased with him. I, I went and did this thing for Lady A a couple years ago. And he was uh, he was chipping around. You know, Jake's just dressed to the dime. You know, he he, 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 he looks the part out there. And I saw him chipping. And I was just trying to mess with him. I was like, man, you got a little hitch in your backswing right there. You're not quite on plane. You need to. Really? You know, am I, am I not taking it back far enough? I'm like, oh, I, I, could, I could get in this guy's head quick right here, man. I could, I could destroy him just in the middle game. But he had a good swing. Jake had a good swing. Colt Ford's actually. And I've heard, I've heard, I've heard Colt's a real baller. And I could, you know, and me and Colt were actually, we both, we love Jake, and we, we were both kind of uh, teasing with Jake. You know, Colt was kind of, you know, being like, oh man, I'll take Jake's money, man. When it comes down to money, he, he can't, he can't get it done. So, but I've heard, you know, Colt played on Nationwide Tour, and that's. You got to be a player to play on that. I mean, there's some really good players out there. What are you trying to say with your music now? Like, what are you trying to say with your music? <sighs> I, I don't have like a. You know, people ask me, "What is your sound?" and "What are you like?" I, I don't have a specific thing that I'm trying to say. I'm just always trying to be authentic in my emotions. And transparent with the the place that I'm at at that time in my life. And we get pressed all the time. We gotta sing, you gotta sing to the younger females. Those are the ones that buy the records. And I've always just been like, man, horse shit, man. I'm not doing that. I'm not gonna get up there and try to make the same record over and over just so I can. Man, I, I've seen what we've been building in an authentic fashion, and I and I believe it's because I've, I I have stayed true to myself and I think that people are smart enough to see that and I'll never make the same record twice like I'll keep I want to I want this record to be a stage of where I'm at in my life right now and you'll see that in the songs you know um and I'm not going to try to stay relevant just by reaching that younger demographic like I'm gonna I want my audience to grow with me in life as I'm growing and there's not a specific thing I'm trying to say it's just tapping into certain things like 
you know, like like more girls like you. That was a very honest depiction of where I was at, kind of in that week in my 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 thought process. You know, with just I remember I was watching a dad with his daughter out in the ocean, like a like three weeks before I wrote that song, and and um, trying to teach her how to surf and. He couldn't surf himself, and he was probably not teaching the right things, and she'd been trying for two hours and couldn't get up. And so I paddled over to her, and she was probably nine, ten years old. And uh, and I just sat out there with her for like 45 minutes and taught her how to surf. And with, within those 45 minutes, she was getting up every time. She was riding it great, and she was so excited. And it just, it just where that door has always been shut, I, I find myself, and it's not a... A maturing thing it's just that my life is changing I'm seeing things differently now so it was just kind of I felt myself internally a lot more open to that balance in my life and I don't need to be such a maniac with just the music because there's so much more and I look forward I, mean, I look forward to that I look forward to having a little girl and having you know a wife that I'm crazy about you know one day and and have a place here where I'm right songs. But also have that place over there in Maui where we can go hang out and stay, and I can teach them both how to surf and hang out. Like I look forward to that. So I mean, that's just where my head was that day. So that's what I wrote about. If my head is there in that place, I ain't gonna write about some bullshit about you know just going and partying or whatever. You know, that, I'm not I'm not you know gonna do that just to hopefully have a a radio hit that relates to these people over here. Like I'm going to write what's what I'm feeling at that time. I feel like you got a lot to say. I feel like we could talk for like three hours here today. <laughs> we, we already talked for over an hour. Does it feel like that? Have we really? Oh yeah. Over an hour, like an hour and 10 minutes. I thought so. we'd been here for like 20, 30 minutes. I didn't even, you don't even realize it. Yeah, I, I'll, man, be, I'll be charging long, you for the therapy bill. You're, you're good at it, man. Like I, you know, a lot of times we have to do interviews where it's first of all it's not even a conversation it doesn't mind just reading cue cards and points and it's yeah man I mean like this is I can do this man to be fair I have the benefit of one knowing you better now yeah. I don't need any pine paper I have nothing yeah. I have nothing in front of me um, yeah, it's easier it's easier yeah. when, when you know what's going and I don't even know like I don't even I feel like I learned a lot about you in the last hour yeah. so I appreciate the time and I can't wait I can't wait for the record to come out like there are songs on it I never even heard before you're talking about. Like, let me, let me take that car. Yeah, <laughs> Kevin and I went riding the other day. Man, I've been talking about that. Man, I just I've never felt anything like that, dude. That was insane. I just didn't know a car could do that. Yeah, my car goes fast. Man, that thing's fast. <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, what episode is this, Mike? Sixty-eight. Sixty-eight. So, record comes out because there was a debate. There were there were two dates. When's Sep- September eighth. September eighth. Record comes mm-hmm. out. If it's past September eighth, you can check it out. Guitar Man is what I'm looking forward to hearing. I'm not even going to hear it until the record comes out. Like I don't listen to music right. early. That's fine. Because I like to listen to what my people here for the yeah, first yeah. time. So I'll be waiting for September 8th. Okay. Unless that's one of the bonus tracks. They they'll, be, to... they'll be vinyl. So you'll have to like spend, take a night, man, and pop it on your vinyl player. I, I appreciate the talk. You bet, man. It's been I a good it. one. All right. Kip Moore, episode 68. 68. That's the Bobby Cast. Thank you very much, and we'll see you next time.